Welcome to The Uncertain Artist, where each week we discuss the highs and lows of forging a life in the arts, specifically the collaborative arts and mostly here in Seattle. Our starting point each week is an episode of the YouTube show, The Uncertain Detective, which was created by me, Greg Lashow, and I'm joined by our show's writing and story consultant, Joe Guppy. Today, we'll be discussing episode seven from our second season with our guest, Ryan Purcell, who was the director of photography for that episode. So, Joe, did you get a chance to rewatch episode seven? I did. Took a look at it. Yeah, with a lot, of, a lot of good stuff in there. Yeah. Just a lot, not not uh, uniformly well, good all the way through. Uh, yeah, yeah, it was no, it was uniform. Well, what's one thing? What's one thing you picked well, out? Well, as usual, I really enjoy the way the uh, the intercutting between the kind of the real world of the of the Lachau family and and, and the uh, and the the detective story, the black. It's really the color in the black and white, and particularly in that very opening sequence where there's a a, a lot of uh, overlap between the editing and the and the show. Oh, when the really opening, cool. we see the detectives catch the invisible clairvoyant, right? And then we see me editing that, yeah. And, and then we yeah. see something happening. Yeah, and and it's super cool because like there's one line like uh, that could be him. From the fabulous Annette Tutangi, is repeated like four or five times. Yeah. But because of all the the mixing around the different framings, the different shots, uh, it, it's just really super interesting. It's like, really like cool. The, the poor man's conversation, you know, the, the uh, couple. Of or the the rich man's conversation. <laughs> yeah. So what you're saying makes me think of so. We did the show, I made the show for three seasons, um, 48 episodes, all very short, like four minute, five minute, before mm. the real version of, of the show, right? right? And yeah. I came to you um, as the help. <laughs> How do we turn this into a show? Um, but one of the cool sort of challenges, discoveries was in the original version. So there were three worlds. Mm. So there was the the Greg who makes the detective show. There was the detective show. And then there's Greg, the filmmaker, making the show. And at a certain point, mm. thank God, mm -hmm. I realized, well, it, you have to stop at two worlds. Because if you have right? three, yeah. you could have seven. Yeah. And then, you know, it's like there's no reason not yeah. to go on. <laughs> so, yeah. 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 You weren't ready to tackle the whole, the full multiverse. <laughs> yeah. I mean, as it turns out, I'm not interested in it, but mm. I thought I was for a while there. Oh, the three worlds. Yeah. 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 Well, the two, two worlds is plenty and two worlds is cool. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And you, you were mentioning a, another clip where they were both uh, earlier when we were talking, you mentioned. So uh, yeah, we see, um, we see the detectives. So we see Greg talking to his son, Charlie and recounting the difficulties he's having in making this scene because he lost an actor and so he made mm. the, the 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 bad guy invisible mm. and then you know maybe we'll hear that clip actually okay and then i have to get to work on finishing the case of the invisible clairvoyant you mean the murderous mind reader you haven't been watching no i've tried i'm busy no, we lost the actor. You mean mom? Yeah, she didn't want to play the part. Because she moved out? She didn't move out. She's just getting some time and space. Because you dominate time and space. No, I don't. You're like the Zoybergs in Calvin and Hobbes. Anyway, I couldn't find anyone as good as mom to play the part, so we changed it from the murderous mind reader to the invisible clairvoyant. We tried to stop you before you killed again. You got us, buddy. Frankly, it's been difficult staying on your tail. But once we figured out, you're only invisible to those who want to see you. The rest was easy. We're gonna let you off with a warning this time. No, we are. Just don't kill again. And the invisible clairvoyant communicates only through thought. It's so silly. I love it. Well, while we listened to it, I was going to tell you why I wasn't able to see the show uh, because I have so many experiences of watching, being in the audience, watching something happen on film and something horrible goes wrong. And I could tell a story every episode and maybe will. Mm. But what I thought of because we were listening to it and I laughed. Now, I've heard that scene, of course, you know, a hundred times mm. editing it. 
Um, but anyway, it reminded me very fondly of Lynn Shelton, who, mm-hmm. um, you know, when, when I had the film company, we produced her first feature. Mm-hmm. And uh, Lynn would often screen a work in progress. She would announce to the audience at the beginning, I don't need your feedback. I just want to be in an audience. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, when you're watching it with other people, mm-hmm. you see things and hear things that you'd never hear over and over mm-hmm. at home. Mm-hmm. But what was so wonderful was... And then I saw the film again with her like two years later in New York when it opened. She always laughed at all the jokes <laughs> and she wasn't like priming the audience. Yep, yep. She was just so delighted mm-hmm. in what her actors were doing. Mm-hmm. It was really, really sweet and charming. I, I, I totally hear you. I think that's a, that's a comedy gene that uh, some people have. Um, I, I know I, I do the same thing. I work with a lot of people's scripts and, and uh, I'm, and I will laugh over and over again at the exact yeah. same thing. <laughs> uh, you know, and so it uh, sounds like you do that too. No, I no, oh. I don't normally. That's what I noted that Lynn did it, and uh, I thought, well, that's not me. I wish that was, but uh, her spirit came through. Yeah, nice. Uh, well, let's say hello today to uh, Ryan Purcell. Hi, Ryan. Hi. How are you? <laughs> Good. Thanks for having me. Good to see you. Um, I'm actually super excited that you're here because uh, we get to talk a little bit about filmmaking, which I know so little about after so many years. But before we get into that, can I just ask, I was trying to remember how we first met or when we first worked together. Uh, I have a guess, but I wanted to hear what your thought was. Um, You know, I think, I mean... Did we first meet playing basketball or was it? No, I think the basketball came later. later. Okay. I mean, the first time I remember sitting down with you was maybe talking about the film company's position. Okay, so this is what I thought. So I'm going to remind you. You filmed something for me in the backyard of... Yeah, uh, I remember that. You remember that? And, and, And But I don't remember exactly what it was or what you were... Do you remember what you were shooting? Dancing around in the backyard. There was a lot of, um, you know. This was for Megan's show. Oh, yeah. Was this in 35? Did we film? Wow. So maybe I never even told you that that footage became part of my wife, Megan Murphy's uh, show called The Rich Grander of Boxing, which traveled to Paris and played at this really prestigious house in Paris. You've you've now added that to your resume. That's great. Yeah, I think because I had that, I had, I think we shot on this old Eclair Camflex I had. Uh, I think because I yes, had this. I remember very being, yeah, old. Yeah, I remember um, you on your shoulder. I remember being instantly impressed with your mm-hmm. whole attitude. Yeah. So this is something <laughs> that I wanted that I was thinking about um, why people love working with you, and I just wanted to explore a little bit, like where this maybe comes from. You know, because, of course, being on a film set is grueling. It's tiring. Um, you're so dependent on people not revealing how grueling and tiring it is. So you keep mm-hmm. going. And Ryan just has this even keel, really seem to enjoy being there and getting the work done. Is that, are you making an effort to do that? Is that come natural to you? Are you even aware that that's important? No, of course. I mean, it's really important. I mean, you can't, um, nobody wants to be on a set where things are unpleasant and there's yelling and there's, you know, but you know, it's, it's uh, so being calm and uh, trying to um, solve problems and allow people to solve the problems that they have to solve. Mm. And for you to solve the problems you have to solve is uh, you know, just the way you've got to approach things. So that's, you know, you've done, well, just, I mean, you've done work from industrials to documentaries, to features, to, uh, I mean, you name it, probably you've done it. And um, I would never be able to do that because there's going to be a real variety in quality, uh, of course, I mean, inevitably. And yet you always find the good in what you're working on. Is that like, again, come naturally to you? I could never do that. Well, I don't know. about uh, You know, I mean, I, I do the best I can uh, on the jobs that I do. You know, I, I even look at the stuff that we shot on season seven and wish that I would have done things differently in the moment, you know, but, you know, once it's through the camera, there's nothing you can do about it, but hope the editor, um, you know, takes up the next challenge and, and, uh, you know. But problem solving seems to be like a unifying trait of people who are good in crew. Like what turns them on is, oh, there's a problem. Let's solve it. Sure. That, that feels to me very much like what you do. 
No, I've always loved that part of it and being part of a team, you know, leading a team, my side of the team also being, you know, right, you know, at the edge of the creative process too, you know, you're working with the actors and the director super closely and, um, you know, so it's just a great spot. When you work with me, you inevitably will make the scene better through a director's eye. Like you'll make a suggestion, you'll block it differently than I might have. Um, I'd like to think that I'm pretty easy to do that with, but maybe I'm wrong, or maybe that's just what directors do, and that's normal. It's part of the a little bit of part of the process. I mean, I think you're you're pretty open to whatever um, might happen. Sometimes you're so you you like to you like to get rolling right off the bat um, early on, and sometimes you know for me it's a little earlier than I'd like to be. I'd like to be exploring. Because once you start rolling, then all of a sudden you're piecing things together as opposed to thinking about it together. So um, I'm more likely to say, let's roll and yeah. learn about the scene in the yeah. middle of it and as change it. And yeah. you're more likely to say, well, why don't we just figure it out? It reminds me of yeah. I have this friend who is a bit of a chaos agent, and he often works with a woman who is very much not that. And he told me about a story where he, he said to her, well, why don't we like throw a bunch of balls in the air and see which ones we catch? And she just kind of said, why don't we throw one ball in the air and catch it? There <laughs> <laughs> are two different ways of, of working. So, yeah. uh, Greg, you're kind of a toss them all in the air. I think and, I am. Ryan's more like, let's figure out what ball. Well, I'm, I'm underselling Ryan there. Like, he's very flexible. But I, I, I will say, you know, I won't say guilty, but every time we work together, and let me just back up. So if you watch The Uncertain Detective and it looks good, it was probably shot by Ryan. Um, I do the majority of the work and I'm only able to get Ryan in on certain episodes and even then only perhaps for part of an episode. Um, But I always wish I was more blank like you fill in the blank i wish i had more knowledge i wish i had more understanding uh you know etc like how frustrating is that to work with someone that's like me <laughs> no it's not frustrating i mean i don't i've worked with a lot of first-time directors who are um less connected to the filmmaking process than you are you know how to make movies you've made a lot of movies so um i think i can have a it's pretty easy to talk to you about what you know what are the shots we need to make this happen or how could this be staged so um you know we don't have to move the camera since we're often limited with you know what we can do with our um so let's talk about those limitations so for season three um episode one is going to premiere february 26th at 7 p.m at the sif film center so not on people's iphones although eventually it'll live there mm-hmm. but I, I don't know have you been to the sif film center yeah. it's a big a beautiful screen um so that's a little scary because I don't know what, like, how do we have to think differently? Do you suppose when we're shooting for, there was something comforting about, well, you know, no one will notice well, largely because <laughs> they're watching on a phone and they won't notice. I don't feel that. I don't feel that. Oh, you don't No, I don't have any, I mean, I'm always looking at it the way I look at the, I mean, I'm looking through the viewfinder or, or not a viewfinder anymore, but you know, I'm looking at the image on the screen. I don't think about where it's, but at a certain point, I mean, you go back to film days, right? So at a certain point, you, like all of us, realized, oh, 99% of the people who are going to watch what we're making will be watching it on a small screen, as opposed to back in the day when nobody would have watched it on the, you either saw it in a theater or you didn't see it. You know, to me, I don't really think about it like that. I don't, I don't have oh, any, uh, it doesn't, you know, I'm just trying to make the best image. I mean, would I maybe like, no, I, I think I would just still. Um, try to because you know people watch like this right. the phone is right up to their face well, that's true, isn't it? you know it's not like the, they're watching we got to pay phone. more attention on what we're doing never <laughs> thought about that yeah. you know <laughs> I, I wanted to go back to uh something that echoed from uh, the, what you guys were talking about uh, earlier which is the working with the footage that you end up getting and that, that reminded me of something that megan griffith said uh, a well-known local filmmaker uh, that that her whole coaching when she coached uh, other filmmakers who asked her about her, her, her number one piece of advice was 
go with the footage that you got and, and embrace that and, and don't get stuck on, Oh, I didn't get that shot. I didn't, I didn't get that other shot. How, how do you, how do you two respond to that philosophy? Well, I'll start because I have a story. So I started in film and the first time I did digital um, was a revelation to me. A lot of times in film, you would, uh, you'd see the, the stuff in the editing room you know, I'd say cut. And then before the camera would cut, I was always super interested in what happened right after I said cut. Mm. Like that's actually the world I like to be in, right? Like that, that line that's the, both the fiction world and the liminal space, the liminal space. Yeah. Whatever. I thought I was hoping I was going to say it, but I wasn't sure I knew what it meant. So thank you. Um, but it did occur to, like I saw like that's what I'm interested in. Like I wish we'd kept the camera. And then you switched to digital and I had this experience. So I, I was teaching film at a summer theater camp and I was using digital for the first time. And so I I I saw that a tree, literally, I was on the second floor and a tree flew past the window. I was like, mm -hmm. what's going on? Grabbed my camera. It turns out they were like tearing down some trees on this campus mm -hmm. and feeding them into this giant, mm -hmm. giant you know, wood chipper. Chipper, thank you. Mm -hmm. And so I turned the camera on and I watched the, the, the tree fly and go down and they took the wood chip, they took the tree and they fed it into the wood chipper and then it was all gone. And I did what you're trained to do, which is cut because you got to save money, but you don't have to cut it digital. And to my horror, after I had cut, the three guys who were doing it like went and looked into the wood chipper and it really looked like they were, they were like, where did the tree go? It was hilarious. <laughs> And there's no way to turn the camera back on and get get yeah, that. Yeah. So it was a big lesson for me. I mm. forget the original question, but that's the story. The original question was uh, accepting the footage that you get. Oh yeah, so, Ryan's turn. So. Yeah, I think well, even more just like ping ponging off what you said is that you know any any project you make is a part of the making of the project is a part of the story and where you're at and what you're doing. So you know whatever you can get that is like maybe not thought of initially but you can grab these shots and you can bring the outside world into your film is you know uh, a great thing to do and that's what i love you know about some of the work that we've done and on some of these low budget projects you've got to like really be alert to the presence of anything that you could be looking at that might either help influence the story or tell tell find an image somewhere that's would tell a bit of this story that you would not be you know you're not like have the art direction bring in a potted plant and you shoot it it's more like you find something mm. that is in the environment you are at that can reflect upon the story you're trying mm. to tell how do you like leave yourself more open to that mm. or encourage others to well, I'm I'm open to it. Um, so uh, being flexible and um, you know, I just I I don't know how you can. I don't know about that. It's sort of built in for you. Um, I'm just, it's just a part of what every every movie you make is the the story of making the movie, the team you're with, the people you're with, the hmm. environments you're with are a part of that movie. And and in some places, like the you know the black and white world of. Uh, of the uncertain detective it's harder to fit the kind of real world into it right. but because it's such a directed thing but even there like the hippo scene i was reminded of that oh yeah you, you know that, yeah. yeah you know it's like okay yeah we were just like open okay we're being chased out of the, the zoo <laughs> let's go find something you know and, right. we, and we found a number of shots in there that are yeah my favorite stuff and right? yeah. explain the hippo scene for our uh, listeners so uh, we talked about it in an earlier podcast why weren't you listening everyone <laughs> uh but we were we were at the zoo the zoo had approved us <laughs> but i don't think realized what they had approved and so at a certain point in our shoot they kicked us out and so we went the long way through the zoo <laughs> In an effort to grab whatever shots, the we slow could get, exit, the slow exit, yeah. and we got a just sort of a miraculous shot of uh, Megan playing the the uh, the murderess, uh, overseeing a hippo as it rose from the water into mm. this giant yawn, and mm. it was great. It's a great show, yeah. yeah. And I tend to be, uh, you know, way more interested in the stuff that isn't in my coming for me. Mm -hmm. you know, that others are doing. It's a really interesting challenge and balance, right? To get what you came for on set while also hoping and working in such a way that you get something else that yep. you'd have no idea would come there. Yep. 
And what could I do, do you suppose, to make that more likely to happen? Is it just a, don't say it's a question of money. I don't, I don't think it's a question of money. Um, I, I think you're pretty open to, um, I think. I always I, I feel like we, we, I mean, we shoot, like what's a normal, someone told me this, but I forget. What's a normal, like X number of pages a day is a good day of shooting. I mean, it just okay, depends. Stupid Maybe question. Four, I don't four know, you know. But we shot like 17 pages in one day once, right? And I that makes me feel bad because there's so much to try to get done. So you don't have time. I feel like we rush a lot because we're racing the clock. We're racing the sun. We're racing everyone's schedule. I don't have enough money to spread this out over days of shooting. Right. I mean, it's, you know, money affords you more time or money affords you more people who can, you know, load gear into a location or load gear out of a location. So, um, you know, it's, it's hard sometimes when you're faced with a lot of pages, um, it can be tough to get those days. So, so Joe Ryan has suggested that rather than turn my living room, both my living room and my character's living room into the detective's office, mm. that we try to get a set mm. and be able to kind of go there and, you know, come back to it. And mm -hmm. it's, and that's an interesting, you know, cause part of the premise of the show is this character has to turn his living room into a detective's yeah, office, right, right? right? There's that stress right. and that tension in yeah. his life, but it would be kind of fun and cool to, you know, actually have a set and shoot in. The the idea is to uh, make it more efficient, or or well, it'd be uh, certainly more efficient to to. I mean, the the um, detective's office has been, you know, <laughs> has had some you issues. I mean, there's some it. great things about it. Yeah, uh, yeah there's yeah, been some some yeah. have been better than others. That, um, no, that that is true. I do remember an episode where the detective's office was kind of unclear, or just visually. I, right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and sure. I feel like you know, it's like to really separate these two worlds. You know, yes, you would have like maybe the door to the detective's office mm -hmm. at the house, or you might have a couple flats, or you'd have the idea of the office in the house. But once you're in the office, oh, we don't necessarily have to duh, be right. Oh, so as if it is in the house, but it doesn't. But that the right. magic of filmmaking is not really in the house. Well, you know, oh, it's yeah. right. It's a different yeah. world. Right, it's right. Like doesn't exist. Yeah. Although you know, I did like that one shot where we're in the office looking out. But you know, we could do that through the door into the seeing you know, from this kind of magic fantasy land into reality. But I think you can do that with a door and door jam. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, but it just depends on how many days there are in the detective's office to shoot or, you know, I mean, it's kind of like a scheduling. Yeah. I, I think I brought it up because in, in writing, we're, we're writing season three now and I'm, I'm, I'm playing around with my character, you know, having us access to a set and shooting on and wondering what, that would feel oh, like. so if you want to go for that reality but you're suggesting that we we don't need don't to need it doesn't yeah. necessarily have to yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. i think it, we huh. could keep them separate and i mean the, the kind of the negative on that is uh i mean i know you like to um mac just can't see you wanting to shoot all the uh detectives office sets at one time like in a three-day period or something right. like that that seems unlikely so yeah, yeah we'd exactly. have to bounce back and forth with gear and maybe lighting equipment too i don't you know this is kind of the boring, no, the boring part of it. No, actually, <laughs> to me, it's. It, I'm watching. I'm listening to us from the outside and thinking, uh, "Oh, we solve problems. Like the, this is the challenge is to solve problems." Um, that's what I love about making the show. Is when I get frustrated. For me, the writing is the frustrating part because it's not. Um, doesn't come easy, um, and. You know, you spend days, weeks, months, like trying to create the the um, the nuts and bolts, the basics, sorry, the outline of what you're going to write, and it's very frustrating. And then suddenly, it kind of clicks. And once it clicks, like every time you take a walk, a new thought comes, a new idea. Like it starts to write itself quickly, and you get to enjoy that. I get to enjoy that for about two seconds, because the very next thing is okay. Now, how do we film that? How like mm -hmm. how do I do justice to that? Right. Mm -hmm. But anyway, I love that. Yeah. I love like, oh, it's now good enough that you can feel bad if you don't do a good job filming it because you're not doing justice to the script. That's a cool place to be. Mm -hmm. So I like I like listening to us talk about mm -hmm. problems. <laughs> you know, I, I, I keep uh, going back to the, something that you said earlier that um, 
that I had never thought of before, which is kind of I think is a very cool thing, which is the idea that the story of the making of the movie is inside mm -hmm. the movie itself. You know, and I, I guess I think of legendary films like, um, like uh, what's the Francis Ford Coppola Vietnam story, Apocalypse sure. Now, yeah. and with legendarily horrible uh, mm -hmm. sh uh, shooting situation, and then all the the pain and anguish is on the on the screen, perhaps. Um, and then I think of the times that I've been on the set with the two of you, in Uncertain Detective, and there is that lighthearted, um, wh whimsical humor, but really, really good vibes. You know, mm -hmm. even though there's a big crew there, there's a lot of pro here. a lot of problems. Yeah, a lot of problems to solve. But I remember that in in this the house that's adjacent to our podcast studio. Uh, being on the set there and really feeling the the fun vibes. Amongst, well, making movies the, is fun. I mean, yeah. I don't, you know, I've always liked it. So uh, you know, uh, yeah. yeah. But you, you obviously, the two of you are able to conspire together and and let it be fun for the actors. Well, I think the, for Ryan, it's easier because I just had this conversation with Megan this week actually because I was I, re I remembered in season two, I started saying out loud to whoever would listen on set. Oh, this is fun. Hmm. Because I wasn't letting myself enjoy. There's always just another, like, it's too much, you know? Mm -hmm. But you have to stop and remember. It mm -hmm. reminds me of something Matt said, Matt Smith in our last podcast, that if he's not, when he's on stage, maybe you can explicate this a little. When he's on stage, he said, I, he was talking about the improv that you had done. Mm -hmm. And the first two went really well. The third one was mm -hmm. terrible. And he said, if I don't remember to be grateful, mm -hmm. then it's really bad. Mm -hmm. That's really struck me. Did mm -hmm. that resonate? Yeah. Uh, well, it did. It, it in a general sense, I resonate with it. I'm not. I, I probably don't intentionally put in my mind. Uh, let's. Uh, I'll be grateful. But um, but uh, but there is a. Um, I guess you know. Wow, that's kind of blown my mind in a way. So when I'm in the zone on the improv stage, um, I am in a state of gratitude because I'm okay. I'm so. Um, because I just am loving it so much and, and I'm, I'm so present to my fellow performers. And one of the things we, we always stress is take care of each other, right? That's, that's like, take care of your partner, but you that by a corollary, the partner is taking care of me. So, you know, in, in thinking of the, the good, uh, the two really excellent, uh, shows that Matt and I did, we're taking care of each other and we're, mm. and we're having fun and, and we're also giving to the audience. You really get the feeling I'm giving to the audience. Um, so, wow, that, that's, does not, that, does that resonate with you as I mean, I will say when you come back from a shoot in like Utah, Mm -hmm. You're just beaming, like you. You. I, I, that's sort of the happiest I ever see. Oh yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I, I mean, I enjoy doing it. I mean, that's why I've always, um, you know, I mean, I've shot, I don't know, eleven feature films and I don't know, thirty short films. I mean, I, I do. I love narrative, really. I mean, and that's why you know I got into the business is you know because it's interesting to help tell stories, you know, and you're part of the team that is telling whatever story the film is telling. So. Um, you know, I'm always, I always enjoy that part, even, you know, I mean, there's tough days and tough hours and tough moments um, throughout the process, but, you know, I, I'm, you know, I was like a point guard in my high school basketball team. You know what I mean? That's that my mindset is like, mindset. let's mm -hmm. all together make this thing and have it be, you know, both fun to do, make something good, be alert and present to whatever it is we can find. Yeah. Yeah, that's bring what you're so good at is being alert and present and, yeah. and, and on set. Uh, okay, we'll talk more about that. We'll be right back. This episode of The Uncertain Artist is sponsored by The Pink Door, a fantastic restaurant that has been an important part of my life for many years. I met my wife there. Both my kids have worked there. We've had numerous birthday parties and other family celebrations there. I even filmed a scene from my feature, The Wright Brothers, there. Are you looking for a place for lunch or dinner that pairs simple, seasonal Italian food with a strong sense of community and culture and a big-hearted generosity of spirit? Well, you're looking for the Pink Door, located in the heart of the Pike Place Market since 1981. And we're back. Um, so before we uh, got together today, I asked Joe to watch a little bit of American Honey, which was a movie from maybe 2016, I want to say that um ryan had recommended to me 
when people recommend movies to me, I rarely watch them. And when I do, I'm usually disappointed. But this was a highlight when I got to see that movie. And mm -hmm. it's almost three hours and I stayed with it all the way through. I loved it. And I was trying to recall why we had been talking about it. Um, do you happen to remember? Might have had to do with aspect ratio to be honest. Oh, that's I think <laughs> I like it. Is. Because that shot in it's like uh, a four three. three yeah. So tell me, talk, tell people what that means. You know, it's just a widescreen versus a television uh, format. Um, you know, uh, it's certainly not the most interesting thing about the movie, but, you know, it does give a sort of an, an immediacy to it that I think is interesting. And the, and the movie itself is just, it kind of, it goes back to that um, letting the making of the movie um, influence the movie. You know, I mean, it's all over that American Honey. You know, there's just everywhere they go, they're, discovering mm -hmm. yeah when you're watching the movie and this is an experience i have with simple movies this is a simply made movie in the sense of you don't get the sense of like huge crew and you know they were on the road and doing their thing right. and when i see movies like that that's when i think how did they do that like i never think that about you know some big budget movie it's the simple things like, you know, it reminds they... me a little bit of that what's the movie you did that where you guys are like coming back from the there's a circus or not a, a a fair or a, I just remember maybe like this is the movie I made. Yeah. Yeah. Like, uh, <laughs> I just remember this, this long scene of you guys walking down and there's like a, a fair in the background. It was, it felt, it had that kind of feel to it. Oh, nice. Pretty loose. And also, um, I think that was a remember? Fellini film. Wasn't it? <laughs> what was that? You know, yeah. you made it. Yeah, but in any event, that's it's just such like a cool thing that you, 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 it's that's when you think how did they do that you know yeah and when you're watching american honey well first of all in the aspect ratio it occurs to me they spend a lot of the movie in this van yeah and the aspect ratio allows them to sort of have just the edges of the van at the edge of the frame and really like their community only and not the world outside mm -hmm. it would be a, a different feel without them. i feel like i need to just jump in here Please. to be the clarifier okay. that what we're talking about aspect ratio the, the this movie is shot in four three which is a television like it's yeah so when you square, watch it more square it, when you watch it now if you watch it in the theater it would maybe be less noticeable but if you watch it on your tv screen you're not seeing it in widescreen at all you're not even seeing the bars on top and bottom you're seeing the bars left and right mm -hmm. so it's a very specific choice and, yeah yeah you know it's how all movies and were back in the you know long ago all did, movies were at that aspect. did that help them with the limberness of the camera work or did that was that just a choice made it's a, internally no, it's a totally cho choice i think to keep the i mean you know your close-ups the face fill fills the frame a little bit better mm. um that's a total choice. Yeah, and they're almost everything is close up in that. And yeah. when I when they move away from that, it's very striking. And it's interesting that you recommend that to me because one of our tensions a little bit is uh, I like to lock my camera down and not move it. And you, you like to suggest that maybe we might move it here as it would give us a little more flow. And I lock my camera down um, for a few reasons. One is just simplicity. Sometimes I'm acting and on the DP when you're not there, yeah. you know. Um, uh, but also it's sort of how I was brought up, you know, watching movies, the movies I love, movies by Ozu or, or, uh, people like that, um, tend to have this very locked down camera. My new fave movie is this movie Columbus. It's a few years old. Did you, I didn't that? see that. No. Um, uh, anyway, uh, and then when you suggest that we move the camera, it's almost always a good suggestion and then makes me wish we did it more. So it's a mm -hmm. Well, some, you know, it, it's, I don't know, sometimes moving the camera is great. Sometimes you're just moving the camera. So if it works for the, for the, uh, oftentimes it takes a little more rehearsal and blocking in order to get camera movement to really, um, yeah. work. And there's two, really two like big schools of camera movement. There's that I'm just constantly hand holding the camera. And so we're, you know, it's always moving that almost always makes me feel like mm -hmm. you just lock the camera down and let us watch the movie. Um, and then there's the more uh, American Honey kind of version where the camera's very much a character yeah, um, and not moving just to show movement, but because it's necessary. And, right, it's and almost a part. The camera is sort of in, inside the movement and moving with the actors. Yeah, and it reminded me of Eternal Sunshine, which has phenomenal camera movement. And yeah. again, I don't normally like it, but it's so... Uh, specific and so organic to the what the film is about um 
I, I want to find ways to move the camera more, I think, just as a, if I'm always looking to learn and get better, because I still feel very much like I'm at just the beginning of, of the knowledge uh, spectrum. Um, anyway, yeah. Well, I wanted to ask about the kind of these frames within frames in the uncertain detective mm -hmm. and how deliberate that is. I mean, the classic one, of course, is we're over the shoulder of Greg and he's and he's editing and we see the the uncertain detective being edited on the on the on the screen. So that's a frame within a frame. But then lots of other times there's a a, a doorway and there's something somebody moving in the background. Mm -hmm. I remember specifically in one of the episodes we talked about cutting from here and there's those characters and then we see and then we're over here and the, we see the same characters from a different mm -hmm. angle um is, is that something that's built into your thinking on this particular show or is it just something that uh happens it, it's built into mine and we would do more of it if we had more time money and everything but go ahead Ryan. well some of it just is like you know like the the monitor and the over the shoulder shot that's just built into the show you know we're always going to be shooting him at the computer and the you know all the zoom calls and all yeah, that sort of right. like is part of, it's part of the dna you know the other stuff is sometimes you're just looking for a, a shot that that uh you know you can get some distance from the characters and that you know always is going to bring in foreground and and uh if you've staged the shot where you can get deeper into the set and look at the uh characters in a in a wider frame it's always I'm always looking for that. You know, it's just a constant um, being aware of what the location's giving you that you can use to help make the piece better. So one of the things that struck me is in our conversation, we we haven't, you know, talking with a cinematographer and we haven't talked equipment, which is good. <laughs> um, because when you're just starting out as, uh, you know, maybe some of our listeners are, that that's in uh, uh that can that is a concern that looms larger in your head than it should right and every and even when people tell you it doesn't matter you don't believe it <laughs> um but uh you've always you know i've always i've noticed that you've always been encouraging to younger people on set you're teaching as you're going mm -hmm. um you've been just such a oh, sort of interwoven into the community in so many ways um i don't know maybe talk a little bit about suggestions you make to people getting started or or something like that yeah well i would say we're sort of in a golden age for um making movies i mean you can there's so many great cameras there's so much great lighting there's so everything's pretty available and it's not a fortune to purchase it so you can cut everything on a little computer here you can i mean the, the uncertain detective is a great example of what you can do with you know not a lot not a lot yeah <laughs> You know, you can make a whole show. I mean, yeah. it's, kudos to you for doing it. It's, it's no easy task. Yeah. So so I, I feel like, you know, you look at all these like 72-hour film festivals and 48-hour film festivals, people are just, people are making movies in a way that, you know, we could, and when I was coming in, making a movie was something rare to be a part of. Now I feel like, you know, people are getting their feet wet on all sorts of different projects and all sorts of different levels. So, But are people going beyond getting their feet wet? Like it's... It's not easy to do anything, but it is easier in a certain way to make a first film than to make a second, oh, yeah. in large part because when you go to make your second, you remember how hard making the first was, and and that's got to be why there's so few. What's the what's the temperature of the Seattle Northwest area right now? Well, the temperature is sort of the same. I mean, it's just very hard to make money, but filmmaking can be an expensive proposition. Oh, really? Yes. <laughs> It just takes a lot of people, you know, it takes a lot of time. And uh, if you're going to make something, um, it's going to cost you some money. So even if you spend a minimal amount of money, um, it's just difficult to monetize. So yes, you can make a first movie for $50,000 or $100,000 or something like that. And then you have to face uh, the world looking at it and, um, you know, saying, okay, that's great. Good job. Um, make What's another next? one. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> like, uh, you know, so it's just hard to monetize things. That's, uh, and that's part of, uh, you know, I think it used to be a little, when there was fewer films, it was easier to maybe have a movie that could break out. Mm. Now, so I it's think not so much that there's less happening in Seattle. This is a theme of this podcast because we're older. So we feel like, oh, it used to be better, but really that just means we're not as connected. Mm. It's more, uh, 
there's more than ever getting done. I feel like, but it's just yeah. not getting noticed like some some of. But the- but it is true that Washington State went through a change in their tax structure in the '90s or something, and and took you know, a lot of a lot of business went to Vancouver. I mean, isn't that well? Isn't that a factor in the local film economy? Yes, I mean. Yes. I mean, they're used to, we were, I was fortunate enough to come of age in this town when it was a, um, a, a building film industry. You know, we had, I worked with tons of great DPs. I worked on tons of amazing projects that were, you know, Hollywood projects came up here and then Hollywood projects kept going to Canada where it's cheaper and our industry shrunk. Yeah. Um, so that, uh, you know, you can't deny that at the same time, there's plenty of movies, you know, I think shortly after that, um, you know, the film company, there were still a lot of indie movies happening. And um, and I think even now there are still a lot of people making films. So, so talk about your like, what is the normal climb up the ladder to become a DP that people want to hire? Like, how did you get started? Is that like, are you a grip at first? Are you a PA? What are you? It can happen in a lot of different ways. You know, I um, started off um, working for a local filmmaker named Carl Krogstad. Oh, that's oh, really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, so you you mm-hmm. probably know Carl. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. So I worked with him, you know, first got into the business with him. And, uh, and so you, you had a hand in everything, basically. You yeah, were shooting films, 16, lighting, 16, you know, 16 millimeter films. Mostly doing lighting, yes. Yeah. So, uh, you know, that was just like the job that nobody else wanted to do. So <laughs> I was willing to do it. And and uh, so I did that for a number of years. And then, um, then um like HBO movies started to come up here and want to shoot up here. Uh, and I got into the art department. I worked in the art department for I don't know five or six years, I think, you know, doing a set dresser and stuff like that. And then um, just wanted to be on set more, you know, set dressing is actually a pretty interesting job because you do get to, you know, dress a set the way an actor might live in that set, you yeah. know? So you get a pretty, um, it's mm. kind of a fun uh, little window into the character and you can, throw things in there that will make it in the movie. Mm. Um, so I did enjoy that, but I just wanted to be on set. And so I started to, I went back to lighting and I worked as a grip for a long time, which is great because you get to stand right next to the DP if you're lucky and, you know, you're right in the heart of the project, you know, so, you know, getting him things that he needs or she needs or, you know, um, so that was a great place to do it. And then I became a gaffer because I lighting. Say, really say what a gaffer me. is. Uh, he's the head, the person who's in, or they're the person that's in charge of the lighting department, and uh, you can have a lot of uh, creative input into that depending on the DP. If the DP's a big lighting person, you're more of a, a collaborator. But if they're more just a camera person, sometimes you get a lot of say into how to do things. So, and then just uh, moved into shooting after that, um, just because you know once you get a little bit, you want a little bit more, <laughs> you know. And crew in any community, Seattle would be no different. It's very much a who do you know, not in the sense of uh, uh, importance, but just, oh, I've worked with that person and they're they're reliable. Like reliability is, you know, so important. And so if you show up on set at whatever position and prove yourself, you're likely to get another gig out of it more more work from it right? well, especially when it's a building economy like it was back then like was, you know it yeah. was like uh you know we haven't quite been in that um state for quite a while so in a shrinking market you know you don't have all these opportunities i was lucky to come up when it, we were in a growing market and there were a lot of opportunities and things are changing a little bit in the seattle community there is a little there's bit actually more some, yeah, growth pretty good happening. uh yeah, I think you know the Washington Filmworks has this great um, in, the incentive program has really improved, um, and they also have a uh, this low budget incentive program, which I'm I think is a great idea. And um, explain what that is. Uh, that's their uh, incentivizing projects that are um, low budget projects. Oh, I got one of those. Yes. Oh yeah. Exactly. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> For season three of the Uncertain yeah, Detective, exactly. who knows if I'll get to make use of it because right, I have to raise still, the, a bunch more money. But yeah, right, you still have to raise the money, but yeah. they are um, incentivizing. Um, who you're talking right, about. art art movies. That's so great. Yeah, oh, no, yeah. this was so. Shout out to Washington Maybe. Filmworks. Yeah, Washington Filmworks. Shout out to Washington Filmworks because um, you know, for many years, uh, applying for grants, and this is not a grant, but applying for anything, the first thing you have to say is how your work is 
uh, in some way meaningful to the community. In other words, very little to do with actually making art, but mm. other things became the dominant mode of funding. And it's discouraging if you if you don't think you're doing something that's changing the world and making it a better place, but instead you think you're making art. Mm. Um, but anyway, shout out to Watch and Filmworks for their very streamlined, here's what I want to do application and 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 uh, helping us get yeah, going. Yeah, you still have to, I mean, you have to do the hard work of, of raising the money, yeah. but you do get money back. And I think it's going to help, um, especially with, you know, uh, in the past, they've more incentivized larger Hollywood program, uh, Hollywood jobs that come in. And those jobs are great jobs to have, no question. But it's not like they're helping the directors or the the mm. the Creatives heads of the creative community, community yeah. as much. And yeah. I think these projects will help um you know, yeah, and I'll just say I wish, and, and you're a big uh, sort of supporter and pusher of uh, let's make more work and let's encourage more people locally to make work. And I'll just underline and reinforce, like I wish those structures that were here were doing even more um, to take chances, to um, encourage, and even sort of sponsor and commission and you know in order to do that you're going to have failures you're going to have work that's not good but um you can't have great work if you don't take the chance and it's a leap of faith you have to do it i was thinking that you know um andrew yang has some you know your buddy andrew yang has some (laughs) some uh i just heard him talking a little bit like artistic vouchers and i was thinking about you know a way to support artists in the community in a way people and instead of things being so so um bureaucratic where the people can support um the artists that they would like to support Mm. you know and that could be done with something like our democracy vouchers Mm. and taking that and having it being an artistic Mm. vouchers so if you go and see a show that you'd like or if you see uh you you do something you go see uh, there's a painter you any any sort of thing an artist could get these sort of artistic vouchers Mm. from the community one thing that's so cool about that so i feel like you know, the one card you have as an artist is you get to decide whether you want to make something or not. Like, that's it. You know, the world sort of holds the rest of the cards. And when you have to apply by first saying, here's what I want to make, please give me permission. Please, you know, say, yes, that's worthy. You kind of feel like you've given away a possibility that you're going to do something great. And better is to say, we think you did something great here, go do something else and mm. let us know when it's made. Yeah. This was the idea behind the film company that I created. We greenlit artists first, and then they would tell us what they were going to make with our company. Yeah. And, you know, uh, I got that idea because I heard about, I think it was Sylvester Stallone or someone like that, some, some movie. And some, someone said, you know, all he did was go into the head of the studio and say you know me in a tunnel and boom 60 million and i was like yeah that's how it should be (laughs) i have no problem with that like artists get to decide first uh, or they don't they lose the opportunity to make something great i think right if you you are looking too deep digging too deeply into what it is you're trying to do you can lose the impetus to yeah yeah like that yeah all right so we have a question from uh a listener go for it gravy Okay, um, Frederick from Omaha, Nebraska asks, what is one of your most memorable moments from the last project that you worked on? Hmm. Well, the last project I worked on was a um, Western called uh, This Bloody Country. Uh, It's out there, um, hopefully in the festivals soon. and uh, we shot that in uh, southern Utah, and it was a pretty. It was we were very isolated. We were forty-five minutes from the nearest town, and um, it was a tough, challenging shoot. Um, and uh, we were at this, um, doing this uh, scene at the at the opening of this wash, and um, we got word that the opening of what of a wash, you know, like a. Uh, um, is that like, yeah, a, like, a, geologic- like a canyon? Oh, yeah, gotcha. Yeah, 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 like a canyon. And of course, there's flash floods happen all the time in oh, these areas. Right. So we got a um, warning that a um, the water was coming down the thing, and we were still had to shoot um, a pretty important scene. Um, and you know, of course, the light is failing. The water's coming. The water's coming. <laughs> We've got it. We are clearing all of our stuff out of this. We had to sort of um, load all of our um, 
gear in uh, and we couldn't no wheels were allowed on this land so we had to hand carry you know all of our gear you know half a mile in something like that it was a lot so we had to take it all out of the stream bed and then we're sort of perched up on the side of this so you're bed. taking it out because the water's coming Water, so you're resetting yeah. the shot well or you're just we, waiting we're no we, we you're took getting it all out, out of there i got you we're getting it all out of there we're, we staged the scene uh on the side of this bed and as we're shooting the stream water starts coming into the uh you know water starts coming into the valley and and uh, you know it wasn't didn't get too deep but it was like you know we're shooting this movie the water's coming in the light is failing and uh it probably looked great well you know we did get a couple shots when the water um was in there with of that were not really connected to our script but we thought okay we're here let's get you know somebody doing something in the water and i think those did make it into the final movie and but it was just a you know it's again it's a little being alert to what you know what's happening around you and trying to use whatever you have in order to make and once you're off set in general i mean i uh send stuff to you and ask you for feedback on on like color and lighting that i can maybe fix and post but are you mostly you know the shoot is wrapped you're off set and that's the last you hear until it's time to watch the movie in a theater um, sometimes I get a little, it depends on the project. Um, you know, I have done color, full color sessions with a colorist and that's what I like to do. Um, that doesn't always happen. Yeah. Like... Um, you know, so, uh, you know, if, if they want input from me, uh, I'm always willing to give it. And I have done it sometimes. Sometimes maybe they're sick of hearing from me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'd like to follow up Frederick's question with uh, what's the most memorable uh, moment that you recall on the set of The Uncertain Detective? <clears throat> Boy. Um, a memorable moment, perhaps. Uh, let me think. Um, you know, one of the scenes that I liked a lot was... Uh, when you're walking with Megan down that um, path in the the woods over on uh, that was just beautiful scene and you guys oh in Interlochen Park yeah yeah and we had our big kiss yeah, yeah. I, I just have a good feeling about that one and you know it just was such a northwest such uh, a northwest yeah. moment yeah. and you know just a lot of fun yeah uh, that. and I love because it does look like we're in the forest and we probably had to travel 300 miles to the to the rainforest to get there but yeah. it's about yeah, 400 yards from where we live from where we are now although i also really like the one where we're in what were it like uh when the sh the shooting happens what was that location the the oh in four culture yeah in four so culture. i'll just tell yeah we we shot the last the, the the uh the big murder at the end of episode two at four culture great example of i had an idea for how to film it and it wasn't nearly as good as what ryan came up with um and we actually we're in the same location, but found the stairway and that whole thing. Yeah. And um, uh, even even got Charlie Rathbun to uh, smoke a cigarette and puff it out right before we yelled action. So that uh, we turned the corner and it looked like the gun had fired. You know? Yeah, that was a good that was a good location and just kind of fun the way it the way the scene developed. Yeah, and yeah. Once we understood how we yeah. could shoot it, and it just was, yeah, that's nice. one of those things where you get a great location and you know you can make yeah. something amazing yeah. out of it. All right. Well, let's let's uh, put that on the calendar for for season three. We'll season, find some uh, good locations. Yeah. Yeah. Good locations. Well, as always, these go super fast. I, I have a lot more stuff I want to talk about with you, but we'll have to it's save quick. it for the next one. It's quick yeah. for us. Yeah. Thanks so much, man. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate yeah. it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. You bet. Please join us next time for another episode of The Uncertain Artist. And if you have a question we can ask our guest in a future episode or ask ourselves, drop it to us in the comments if you're watching on YouTube or email it to us. Our email is theuncertainartist at gmail.com. Also, save the date. Season 3 of The Uncertain Detective will premiere February 26th of 2024, 7 p.m. at the Sith Film Center right next door to Climate Pledge Arena. We will follow the screening with a live taping of this podcast, so come join us. Tickets are free and can be reserved through the Seattle International Film Festival website. We hope to see you there.